going on? What's going on? How's been? Pretty good, man. It's been a while. How have you been? Busier than we want to be. Yeah. <laughs> That's good, though. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers. I mean, um, cheers to Friday. Cheers, man. We made it. I know. I know. What are you up to these days? I've been busy, you know, running around. We've been doing, uh, we got just our normal oil and gas stuff going on. Uh, the energy side's been busy. It's been good. You know, people are getting active again, guys picking up rigs. So that's exciting. We didn't get a lot of that the last couple of years. So, uh, so that's been a positive. A lot of, uh, some due diligence stuff, people trying to buy things. Although I think like the choppiness right now uh, may make that a, a bit of a challenge. Um, but, you know, seeing a little bit of uh, due diligence and then, Gas prices being higher has been huge. I mean, this is, it's great for us uh, because we market gas. So, you know, part of our fees are sometimes like exposed to the commodities. So, you know, been through a lot of years, the last decade where we're just like uh, wallowing in like $2 or below gas prices. So, uh, so I can't complain. And then busy on the Bitcoin stuff too. We've been making uh, data centers, building a couple and putting those out to work. And the wildcatter guys got me coming to their thing next week. So I'm gonna be running around doing that. So been, been keeping busy. All right. Well, uh, I mean, have you seen an increase in investment from like, you do a lot of the midstream stuff, right? Yep. Yes, sir. And, um, I mean, is that really starting to pick up again? Because the, the lead time, now you're looking a couple of years out and we keep saying that everybody seems to be overly cautious with their optimism right now. Right. And afraid to allocate capital to longer term uh, returns. And midstream has been tough for a while now. I mean, for years now, I think that midstream without like really consistent line of sight to development, it's, it's tough. And then even where you do have that, You've seen guys in like even really active areas like the Permian really start to pull back and shy away from spending capital, trying to push it to the producers and say, no, you need to build to me. You need to lay a line to me. You need to set the compression. Uh, treating has been an issue. We've had some uh, some guys that we know that are, oh, sorry, I, switched, I don't know if I switched off there, but uh, had some guys that we know that are having to basically look at potentially building out their own treating. So it's like the midstreams are there. They have the capacity a lot of times, but they're just not wanting to spend money and so it's getting, you know, that's where kind of our company comes in and we're like trying to figure out the best possible deal we can get uh, for the producer, you know, without them having to come out of pocket and go completely risk on. And then outside of that, I mean, there's just not a lot of new greenfield midstream happening. I mean, it's happening in some areas. Uh, you know, there's, there's water stuff going on. Um, there's, you know, little things here and there. But I don't think the midstream is fully ramped up at all compared to where it's been uh, years ago. So that's just some anecdotal stuff we're seeing. And I mean, uh, ever since the beginning of the shale revolution, midstream has been um, underinvested. Uh, the infrastructure has not been built out that really we need to produce at maximum capacity. I think it's fine for where we are right now. Uh, but I think that if you're trying to uh, become, you know, more energy independent again in the future we're going to be running into these bottlenecks that have been around for uh you know decades right and i just don't see you know we were talking to the intern and i were talking about at the start of the show 
how the news story the last couple of days is that the United States is going to start shipping more LNG to Europe. Well, that's great. Um, we're kind of starved at the capacity to um, export and produce and, and move around LNG. Um, yep. And we're going to need, you know, a, a drastic overhaul of the regulatory process because it takes, you know, half a decade to get approval on building a new terminal. Right. Not just building the new terminals, but getting the pipelines needed to get there. I mean, the Permian is going to need their pipe at some point. And, uh, and these things aren't quick. I can't remember the amount of days. Which guest was it? I had somebody on that knew the exact amount of days. I think it was uh, Michael Kuismano with Pickering Energy Partners. He's their midstream guy. And he was telling me like from start to finish uh, the amount of days it takes to get a new long haul pipeline. The last one built out of the Permian. And it's a lot. I mean, it's years worth of time. So, you know, one needs to get built. Nobody, and that's, you know, playing to what you're talking about, accessing the LNG ports, accessing this gas, also out of the Northeast. Like we need new long haul pipelines. Uh, these take years to get done. And out of the Northeast, there's a big question mark whether they'll even allow it at this point. You know, I mean, they've weaponized the uh, Federal Energy Regula Regulatory yep. Commission, right? So the FERC is... FERC has uh, got all these appointees in there now that they're, you know, they've now just recently put this thing in there that they're going to evaluate every uh, project and they're going to put climate change as a, as a deciding factor on whether they'll approve it or not, you know? So uh, that's just code word for we're basically able to, you know, blackball anything we want, uh, essentially is what that means. So it's a big question. I mean, they, they already were, it. they already were doing that. And now they've made it official policy to do that. So, yeah. Yeah, they just they they took what what they already had in terms of leeway uh, with dragging out proceedings and stuff, and they made it an official part of the process. So again, I just don't see people wanting to allocate these, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars to projects that might not ever actually be able to get built. Right. Yeah, it's it's a huge it's a huge issue. And it's like there's this like case that we're going to just see perpetual natural gas growth out of the U.S. And it's not a matter of whether the resource is there. We know the resource is there. It's a matter of whether we're going to be able to facilitate the infrastructure to get that resource out of the ground and get it to a market that's profitable long term. And so to build these pipelines and then to build these LNG facilities, you got to have people that are committing for long periods of time, decade plus periods, periods of time. And so that's a huge... Uh, Commitment that also translates to balance sheets, right? You have to have balance sheets that can support these projects. And, you know, is a dry gas producer going to, you know, how many out there have the balance sheet? You could probably list them. It probably wouldn't be that hard to list them. And so it's just, uh, it seems easy like, oh, we're just going to build new LNG. We're just going to, natural gas production is going to grow forever. That That's my favorite thing that the last 10 years, that's just been the baseline right? That we're always going to grow gas production, but we got to, we got to build infrastructure. So it'll be curious to see. I mean, gas prices right now, I think are surprising a lot of the bears on Twitter, uh, spiking higher than people thought, but this could be the new, the new normal Five, for a while. 550? Yeah. 550 today. I mean, 550 a couple of years ago, you know, uh, post 2014 crash, 550 would have gotten people fucking excited, man. Right. Right. And everybody's kind of sitting here watching going, yeah, that's, that's good, but you know, not really going to act on that yet. Right. You need time. You need a prolonged well, period of time. 
Go ahead. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I think on the balance sheet point, like I think that's what we're going to see, at least for the rest of this year. All these companies are going to just be really focused on taking their free cash flow and using it to fix their balance sheets and going, well, maybe 2023 we'll start to, you know, look at exploration again or, or you know, ramping up CapEx or something. But, you know, they're, they're enjoying, you know, the, 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 all the extra cash they can use to buy back shares or you know, pay down debt or whatever. Yeah. Well, doing these infrastructure projects is like taking on debt effectively. You're just, you're committing to like paying, you know, a fee for the next 10, right. 10 plus years. So it's like, are they, are they paying down debt or are they committing to new debt? Cause that's basically what that would be is to commit to do to new debt. And I don't think people are in that mode. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I think this whole year we won't really see anybody want to commit to, to spending more money until they've had a good chance to take all this cash they'll be making this year and, and kind of try and fix their balance sheets as best as they can. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that there's also, you know, the whole, uh, you know, virtue uh, investing movement that happened. And what we just saw the CEO of, you know, Blackstone sitting there talking about how they're forcing new behaviors on people right. with their capital. And, you know, when they backtracked a couple of weeks ago and said, oh, yeah, by the way, we actually do support, you know, Texas fossil fuels because they were going to get barred from the teacher's pension fund, which is, well, like $600 million, something like that, I think. Right. And, uh, you know, they, they tried to backpedal on all of that. And everybody kind of looked at that thing, you know, the last 10 years, you guys have been talking about net zero and, and spouting off all of this bullshit. Right. So when you have restricted capital markets, uh, for these projects, you know, raising interest rates and inflation and everything, I, dude, I just, I see energy prices, continuing to go through the roof. It's the first time in my career. Well, I don't know. I guess early on in my career, the beginning of last decade was easier to kind of have more of a rosy picture of things. I mean, gas was pretty rocky. It seen some ups and downs, but you know, since then, since 2014, this is the first time that I can with relative confidence, think that we're going to be in a higher price environment for longer and I still am scared to even say that because of just this, you know, scar yeah. tissue from the last yeah. seven years. But it feels like that's where we're at. I mean, I think everybody's scared to to be optimistic because there is just so much writing on the wall of all of the stupid things that not just our own federal government. Our, our federal government has a lot of, stupid options that they've been discussing, but really it's more of like the global market structure. Um, it just really looks like people are going to make some extremely dumb decisions from a regulatory standpoint that are going to attribute to higher energy prices worldwide, shortages worldwide, and that their solution is going to be more renewable which is going to just continue to create a snowball effect because those renewables are not going 
to always be producing power, you keep shutting down all of the nuclear facilities in the world. Everybody's getting rid of coal, except for China. I mean, it, it's a situation that for the next, you know, 20 or so years, I think we're going to have a serious uh, energy crisis. Yeah, it's uh, the macro is crazy right now. I mean, the macro is just nuts. Yeah. And like, that's the thing I don't know. I mean, the only thing I could say for the, as I was saying that earlier about being bullish, <clears throat> you know, short term, I mean, the, the main thing is that this like kind of recessionary for, you know, forces that we're seeing here. The last time the macro looked like this, we had a major, major recession. Doesn't mean it's going to happen this time though. Everybody loves to look at historical data and say, well, this happened last time this happened, you know, but, but pretty consistently that, you know, in the times when we've uh, started to raise rates like this, and also when times when oil prices have been high like this, we've seen uh, recessions follow. The Ukraine-Russia situation is just a mess. I, you know, I think as it drags on, I'm not sure that we're going to see it bleed into Europe. I hope hope not. I think Russia is just flailing right now. Um, I don't know that they can. They, I don't even know that they can invade Ukraine, let alone other countries. So, uh, so I'm hopeful that it can get resolved and that it kind of, you know, it's tragic and terrible, but hopefully just for the world and for everybody, it can get resolved, but that's the major wild card. but it does seem like there's a lot of things setting up to be kind of looking like we could be heading for a global downturn. Uh, so we'll see that could impact energy prices, but I think the U S is kind of, we're like the shiniest turd right now. Right. It's like all Europe looks screwed. <laughs> I mean, Europe looks screwed like, uh, China, you know, the middle East, like a lot of these countries get a lot of their stuff from Russia. They're not looking great, but like, you know, North America, uh, U.S., Canada, Mexico, not a bad spot. So we'll see. I, I don't know that that'll impact energy prices, but if you had to make a bear argument, I would say like a, like a global recession would be the argument. And I think that a lot of the uh, cautionary optimism is because nobody wants to be rooting for recession or energy crisis or anything like that. It's something that's going to affect a lot of people and uh you know yeah you may be happy that your portfolio is going to be doing really well for the next couple of years but it's still a really bad look to be um you know cheering on issues where you know this is going to be a global problem figuring out how do we get enough power to all of the parts of the world that need it and we might not even be getting enough power here in the United States if we continue to overinvest in renewables and uh, just beat down fossil fuels. We'll get to a point where we're not producing enough power uh, here domestically without more investment in nuclear or natural gas, which now everybody's trying to phase out natural gas, too. It's already happening, right? Like, look at Texas, the brownouts, you know, California. I mean, it's the places where these things are have been implemented the most. By these things, I mean renewables. Uh, it's not good. I mean, you can sit here on Twitter, and there's a lot of guys that know all these, like, counter arguments, right? Like, if you say that anywhere, you know, renewables are at, it makes the grid more expensive. Like, Craig Lawrence will come in my feed and be like, no, it's not true. I did a statistical analysis on this. Like, renewables don't have any impact on energy price. And I'm like... All I know is what I'm seeing, and I'm seeing in the places where these are these policies have been enacted the most, like California and now Texas is becoming one, and in Europe, 
there's like energy crisis right now. Texas obviously has a ton of resources. Hopefully they can get the nat gas, you know, base load that they need, but it's kind of like the proofs in the pudding with this stuff. Like we're just seeing it happen. So you can put fancy numbers in front of me, but when I'm looking out, I'm seeing those people paying the highest energy costs and having the least reliable electricity. Well, China actually produces more renewable energy and has more renewable energy production capacity than any country in the world. And China is also building more nuclear, natural gas, and coal power plants than any other country in the world. Why do you think that they are doing that? <laughs> like, come on. Right. Obviously, they understand that with all of the renewable capacity that they have, you can't store it anywhere. And you're going to still need your base load. More of it. You need more of it, right? Yeah. Is it like, yeah, is it really one to one? Like some people say it's one to one. I don't know if it's one to one, but I've heard that, that it's like for every, you know, megawatt of renewables, I, you need a I megawatt think, of base. Load. I think to be safe, it's, it's close to that. Um, I think that the overemphasis on the renewable side has resulted in a, a drastic shift to, you know, I think a lot of Texas's power uh, during the day is, you know, well over 60% renewable generation. So when you're optimizing your grid for that, uh, you're also basically, uh, since Texas has all these private companies uh, generating power, you're basically, you know, uh, disincentivizing anybody from continuing to upgrade or build out their production facilities for natural gas or coal. You're basically saying, hey, we're only going to run your facility at, you know, a reduced capacity every once in a while. Right. Well, why is anybody going to go ahead and invest the money to uh, continue to do the maintenance and upgrades on these facilities that would be necessary if they were being fully used, utilized? Um, you're in a situation that the only people who are getting, you know, the subsidies and tax breaks and everything are on the renewable side. And so, of course, you're going to have companies that are going to come and overbuild right. on those projects. And if we're still underbuilding on the base load, um, you're going to have situations like what happened last year. And again, nobody wants that to happen. Um, there are a ton of different factors that went into everything that happened last year, I do think it is entirely possible for it to happen again, though. Right. Yeah, it's... I uh, mean, the cost to winterize all of those facilities is prohibitively expensive when it's, you know, once a decade that you actually have a freeze like that. Right. Well, I mean, like, there's a reason why people use coal for a long, long time to generate electricity is because you can store a ton of energy at the site, right? Now we're relying on not just, I mean, I'll even pick on natural gas. Like you have to dispatch. It has to be there, right? Like if it freezes and you can't get it from the wells to the power plant, 
and in and in places like Texas, it's probably the investment to make those, you know, the winterizing these things. It's like it's typically this doesn't happen, so that's just a lot of extra money versus in other places where it's cold all the time, like Canada. I'm sure it's all that's just standard, right? But you know, whenever you get rid yep. of a, a really fantastic source of energy, which is coal, and people want to hate on it, but it's a great source of energy. You can store a bunch of it right there. It's perfect for those types of situations. Uh, you can just put it in the furnace and use it, and it can be like the hero in those types of situations. And we've gotten rid of all of it, so or most of it, right? And then you've got gas and you've got renewables. The renewables are, they you know, pretty much crap the bed uh, most times when these storms happen. You know, sometimes they can bail it out. Uh, but, you know, if there's a big storm, typically the sun's not shining. And then the wind may be blowing. Sometimes the wind blows too hard. Sometimes it freezes. I mean, there's a lot of issues. And then nat gas, same thing. So it's like when we start to like virtue signal our way into these decisions and let's just face it that's what it is when you're doing uh when you're doing renewables on the grid it's a lot of feel good stuff i'm not saying there's no merit at all to trying to look at uh lesser carbon energy sources i think that uh no one wants pollution right like if you can reduce pollution that's a good thing but in theory but uh but there's just consequences to getting rid of these really reliable uh energy you know, methods that we've used forever. There's a reason why we're using them because they worked really good. Well, the, the state of Texas actually asked, um, for an exemption on the, um, it's not the EPA. Maybe it's work, um, has a stipulation about the, uh, proportion of available renewable capacity power generation for your, your state versus what you're utilizing. And so uh, basically, if you cross the threshold of renewable uh, capacity generation to uh, fossil fuels, you pay a higher rate. And so before that storm last year, uh, the, you know, Governor Abbott sent a letter asking for a temporary exemption so that we could have our coal and natural gas power plants running at full capacity throughout this storm because what you were just talking about where uh, in that situation, once the grid started going offline, they were prioritizing populated areas to keep power generation going. Well, when you started shutting off the, you know, large portions of our grid where you don't have a whole bunch of people living, turns out that a lot of those electric meters were on pump jacks and they were on gathering facilities and compressor stations and right. things like that that are necessary for the feedstock for these natural gas plants to continue to operate. So hypothetically, if we had had everything running at full bore, if we had gotten that ex exemption, hypothetically, we may have not had the same devastating effects with the uh, blackouts statewide because the coal and natural gas plants would have continued to function. So we would not have been shutting off parts of the grid that were part of you know, nobody really even knew what parts of the grid generate power right. and how integrated it is from the pump jack to the compressor station to the natural gas facility. You know, you might cross through three different electric co-ops 
to get from point A to point B. And when you're calling every single one of those co-ops and saying, you got to shed 80% of your load right now, they're going to shut off the areas that aren't populated. So when that exemption that Texas requested got denied, the administration here in Texas sat there and looked at this saying, okay, so if we go ahead and do this, everybody in Texas is going to have, you know, a 30% increase in their electric bill or more. I mean, you could put a lot of people into a situation where they literally are not able to pay their electric bill. And if the storm was not as bad as people were thinking it could be, because again, you know, the meteorologists of the world, they still haven't figured this out. So it was like, worst case scenario, um, we run all these power plants at full capacity. Everybody across the state is paying, you know, a huge tax to the federal government as a result. And we possibly are going to bankrupt citizens of our state. Well, what if it's not that bad? Yeah. And we do this anyways, and we still have these increased energy costs. Well, that's certainly not a good option either. So they decided to, you know, try to weather the storm, so to speak. And, uh, yeah, that was a terrible decision. Right. But they were put between a rock and a hard place by the federal government. That's crazy. I had not heard that. No, that's nuts. Um, well guys, thanks for having me on. I got to run here in a minute. Uh, but I appreciate it. I wish that I could have called in before, but I'll try to make it again. I'm usually Friday afternoons are always tough for me. But uh, I was sitting here and I had yeah. some, I was sitting here in the office doing a few things and I saw it come on and I was like, yes, I'm finally free and hop on. So it's been fun. Hey man, glad to have you finally join. Yeah, definitely. You're welcome anytime. All right, cool. Let's talk soon. See you guys. Take it easy.